Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as we open your word together, we pray that you will send your spirit to give us understanding of that which we hear and read. Lord, will you bring us the grace of convincing us of the sin that remains in us, of fleeing to Christ as the one and only remedy for the sin that remains. Will you help us, Father, to put no trust at all in our flesh and our own abilities, but only to cling to Christ and his finished work? We ask now that we will hear from you. We ask that you speak as your servants listen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As you take your seat, if you would, turn with me to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. You know, it's been interesting studying through the book of Judges already. Some of you may be wondering, when are we actually going to get to the Judges? Well, we have quite a bit of an introductory material here given to us by the Word of God. And and it's it's not would not be profitable for us to skip through all of this and and not glean from it what I believe the Spirit of God wants us to know. But the other thing that we've seen uh, that comes out in chapters one and two, as we're going to see today, the first six verses of chapter three, there are a number of things that come out doctrinally, theologically, that we must understand based on the fact that the Israelites didn't, or they had forgotten those things, they had neglected those things. And if we're going to see these as a warning to us, then we will see that those things that they neglected, we want to give our attention to so that we are not negligent in those same ways. And studying through our passage today will be verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. In my study and meditation upon the passage, two questions have come out, two questions that just seem to jump out to me. One of them is, he talks of warfare, talks of leaving enemies in the land because there was a generation that came along that did not know war. And God wanted his people to know war. Why? Isn't that a question that comes to your mind? Why would God want his people to know how to fight? And what's the significance of that? But the other question that comes out as, as we work through what's happening here, because the Lord has not left has not uh, caused the enemies to be thoroughly driven out. He has left enemies in the land. I want to ask, what are those key areas in which God's people rebelled against him, leading to their enemies being left? So again, as I've worked through that this week, I've decided to make that two different two parts. You'll see in, in your worship guide, the title of the sermon is The Warfare of Nonconformity. You can add to that part one. The warfare of non-conformity. So we'll deal with just the why question today, primarily. Why does God leave enemies in the land? And there are this, what we're dealing with is actual historical events where God literally dealt with his people in these ways. And at the same time, there are significant spiritual lessons for us. Have you ever wondered, just to yourself, why did God leave sin in me? Even after I've come to faith in Christ, maybe maybe you've walked with, with Christ for a matter of months. Maybe you've walked with him for decades. And yet you know your sinful condition didn't just evaporate when you came to faith in Christ. You know that in a very real way, there are enemies still in the land, aren't there? If you're honest with yourself, you wrestle with those things. This was Paul's reality. In, in Romans 7, Paul talks about this, doesn't he? He said, I find this to be a rule. There's a law here that the law wages war. The spirit wages war against the flesh. That within me, Paul says, as a believer, he says, there's, there's a battle going on all the time between my spirit, which looks at the law of God and says, this is good, and then my flesh, which still chafes against it. There is a war that's going on. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God not make it so that when someone put their faith in Christ, that all those temptations would just go away? That their battles with sin would be over? Why would God do it that way? We're going to summarize basically the, this passage. I would summarize it like this. Yahweh has left enemies in the land to test his people so that they would know the depth of their unfaithfulness to him and particularly their transgressions against his commands of exclusive worship, marital and sexual purity, 
and the discipleship of their children. We'll cover the first part of that today. Yahweh has left enemies in the land to test his people so that they would know the depth of their unfaithfulness to him. And particularly, their transgressions against his commands of exclusive worship, of marital and sexual purity, and of the discipleship and the discipline and training of their children. Let's read together Judges chapter 3. Begin verse 1 and go through verse 6. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lifted or lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. May the Lord help us. May he bless the reading of his word. If we look back at the end of chapter 2 of Judges, we find that there are two specific reasons that the Lord left enemies in the land. If you look back to verse 20, We see this, and really all of chapter 2 can be summarized in in this statement. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. So in other words, because of all their transgressions against me, I will do exactly as I said I would do, and I will not drive out their enemies. But then if you look down at verse 22, it says, In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So the text gives to us two reasons. We're going to expand upon these, but the first one is because it was a cause and effect. God had said, according to his covenant promise, if you, if you obey my words, I will give you the land, and I will give you all of the land without harassment from your enemies. I will give you peace, and I will drive them all out before you, and they did not do that. Secondarily, we're told that God has left the enemies here in order to test Israel by them. And these purposes of God are, are in perfect harmony together. The idea of cause and effect. Here's the, the proper chastisement for their sin against him. And yet this is also the Lord justly fulfilling his covenant promises. He he has ordained a consequence for them that was ultimately good for them. Think this through. The Lord has both faithfully said and done according to his covenant promises. And also we're going to see that the leaving behind of enemies was ultimately and finally for their good. I think parents... If we will ponder this fact, there there are gems here of parental wisdom. When we give a command, we give instructions to a son or daughter, even the littlest of them, are we faithful to follow through with the consequences we said we would give? Or are we the parent who says, okay, one more chance, one more chance. I'm going to count now to five. Or do we say, "This, this is what my instructions And I expect you to obey them. And here are the consequences. Are we just and faithful to our own word? God was. And at the same time, the consequences we're going to see that God gives to his people were profitable. They were good consequences. They were ultimately benevolent consequences. So again, as parents, are we thinking about these things? Are we, are, when we seek to give consequences to our children, are they merely or only punitive? Are they, do they seek to harm? Are they seeking the growth of our children? Now, I want to be abundantly clear as we consider all of the book of Judges, but but chapter 3 in particular, 
that we're no longer under a covenant of works. If you're in Christ, the covenant of works has been fulfilled for you on your behalf by the word Jesus Christ. Every jot and tittle, all of the law carried out in perfection by Christ. And if you're in him, that has been credited to your account in full in addition to the cleansing and pardoning and the forgiving of your sins. The people of Israel were under still a covenant of works. There was a do this and live, do this, and here's the consequence. Our heavenly inheritance has been secured by the finished work of Christ. We, we can never add to that. We can never take away from that. So on the one hand, I want to make abundantly clear that every man or woman or child who is resting truly and safely in the promises of Christ can never, ever lose their reward. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean we don't learn from the lessons that the Spirit of God gives to us through the book of Judges. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth in his first epistle, he he reminds them about those who had wandered in the wilderness, those who God had led out of Egypt, and because of their grumblings against him, he, he caused them to wander for 40 years in the desert. And Paul said, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Do you think that's interesting? Paul said this was a historical event, and it happened as an example to us, but then it was written down so that we can study it, glean from it what we need to, to walk in obedience before the Lord. So there are important lessons for us to learn, and especially lessons about trusting God and his word so that our obedience will bear testimony to the fact that our faith is genuine. In the writer of, of Hebrews, we read this just last week in our um, morning scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 3. There at the very end, the writer says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter the rest, but to those who were disobedient? Now listen to this. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You think about all the, as you read through the book of Exodus, and you think about all the various sins that the people of God committed in their rebellion against God. They grumbled against him. They complained. The text tells us they committed sexual immorality. It was not, for none of those particular sins that they didn't inherit the promised land. It was ultimately and finally because of their unbelief. God was willing to forgive and pardon any and all of their sin except their unbelief. So according to the Holy Spirit's infallible interpretation of those events, it was their stubborn refusal to believe the precious promises of God that caused them to lose that inheritance, caused that generation not to be able to see the promised land. Now, young people... I want you to pay particular attention, pay particular attention to this, because what, what is happening in Judges chapter 3, we see this in verse 2, or verse 1, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. What we learn here, we see this back in chapter 2 and verse 10, all the generation of Joshua, were gathered to their fathers, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What's happened is there's a new generation that's come and they're disobedient. Unlike their fathers who had obeyed the commands of the Lord, a new generation had come who's neglected those very things. I would ask the young people to consider, have you made your parents' faith your own? To those young people here, are you simply here because this is what mom and dad have done? Are you simply here because this is, this is, this is the home I was raised in, but I haven't actually taken hold of Christ myself. I've not believed his promises myself. 
And we saw this last week. It wasn't, it, the problem was not that the, the children of the new generation did not know about Yahweh, that they didn't know him. There was no relationship there. Have you yourself believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's front and center as this new generation comes forth after the death of Joshua, and we see immediately they rebel against their God. They neglect the things that he had taught their fathers. And God is chastening them here. So that first purpose for God leaving enemies in the land is to chasten his people, to punish them for their disobedience. And then as, as New Testament believers, we have to wrestle with the question, does God still punish his people? Does God still punish us? Even those who are in Christ, those who generally belong to him, does he still punish them? And the answer is yes. Yes, he does. Now, not as, as a means of condemnation, not as a means of judgment, certainly not in the means of losing your reward, but as fatherly chastisement. God may, in fact, allow sin to remain in you, to discipline you, to chasten you. He may allow a neglect of the means of grace. He may allow your, your apathy in, in dealing with one area of sin to cause another to spring up, to provoke in you, to make you realize your helplessness and weakness before him. He may use your own neglect, your own spiritual apathy to cause some particular sin to overtake you so that your dependency on him becomes clearer to you. Isn't this exactly what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12? He, he deals with this idea of fatherly chastisement. And he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, the writer of Hebrews is making this argument that even, even human fathers, Jesus said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven give his spirit? So if, using that example, arguing from the lesser to the greater, if sinful parents, sinful fathers, are able in love to discipline their sons and daughters, bearing evidence, this is truly my son. I mean, I don't come into your home and discipline your children. That would be a breach of your, your sovereignty in your home. But I'm responsible for disciplining all of my own children. And to neglect to discipline that, to discipline a child, is, is essentially to call them illegitimate children. All true children are disciplined. Now, arguing from the lesser human parents to the greater, the perfect heavenly father, the apostle of the Hebrews says, this is exactly what happens. Our perfect heavenly father chastens, he disciplines, he reproves, he corrects us by his word and also by his providence. We find this in our confession of faith. If you, you can turn your in the back of one of your hymnals there, the blue hymnal, in the very back of that hymnal, you'll find a copy of our Confession of Faith. It's somewhere around page 685, 686, I think. But in chapter 17, this is the chapter on perseverance. I won't read the, the entire chapter. I'm going to read just one paragraph here. This is laying out before us the doctrine of, of how God causes us to persevere. If you are truly in Christ, you will persevere all the way to the day that either he calls you home or he returns in glory. That's an unambiguous fact from the scriptures. But listen to paragraph three. It's speaking of those who are true believers, those who are truly in Christ, have been effectually called and justified, adopted as sons and daughters. 
So there's a they in the very first clause. That's who they is, is all the true believers. And though they, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. They come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. So these words hail from the 17th century, but they are absolutely true according to the scriptures. This is exactly what the the scriptures teach to us, that even those who are in Christ still have a war raging within us. In the language of our confession, through the temptation of Satan and of the world and the prevalency of corruption remaining. We hear this as the world, the flesh, and the devil, don't we? All wage war against us. So both purposes of Yahweh in leaving enemies in the land are in harmony. The justice of God in fulfilling what he told them would happen if they disobeyed his covenant. If they if they went and made covenants with the peoples of the land, if they intermarried with the peoples of the land, if they worshipped the Baals and the false gods of the people of the land... Here here are the consequences for that. And secondly, God is testing Israel to see if she would, in fact, remain loyal to him. So it's on this second point. I want to spend a little bit more time today. As as we think about this, this first purpose is, is to give them to them the just consequence of their own actions. But also we're told repeatedly here, that God did so to test his people. I already pointed out in chapter 2 that this was in order to test Israel, but it's repeated twice more in the first four verses of chapter 3. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. And then, again, in verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And again, he's speaking specifically to this next generation. This is not speaking to the, to the generation of Joshua that had been faithful to the Lord. This is the next generation who we're told did not know Yahweh. It's a generation that had been too young directly to fight in the war, the war, the Canaanite wars. And it's specifically a generation that is after Joshua. And applying this spiritually again, why is it that God allows these enemies to remain? Why does God allow sin to remain in us? Why does he allow temptations to come? Why does God allow evil to remain around us? These questions you've ever thought about, why why is it that in your own neighborhood, in your own extended family, in your workplace, when you drive down the interstate, you're, you're visually and, and audibly assaulted if you have the radio on with all kinds of things. You, why has is, why is God allowed this to remain? John Gill, commenting on this passage, says, Therefore the Lord left these nations. Without driving them out hastily, he left them unsubdued or suffered them to continue among the Israelites and did not drive them out as he could have done, that it might be seen and known whether Israel would give into the idolatry of these nations or not, of which there could have been no trial if they and their idols had been utterly destroyed. So there couldn't have been a testing. There could not have been a trial. He goes on, and for a like reason, the indwelling sin and corruptions of God's people are suffered to remain in them for the trial of their graces, and that the power of God in the support and deliverance of them might appear the more manifest. So the intention of Yahweh testing his people was both for his glory and also for for their good. God intended to reveal to them their idolatrous hearts. See, how easy is it for us to deceive ourselves and say, you know, I'm really doing pretty well. I mean, I look around the world and relatively speaking, compared to the other, you know, let's face it, the other losers all around us, right? We can have that kind of thinking in our head. I think, oh, man, I'm sure better than this joker. 
And the Lord allows temptations to come to us, allows difficulties to come, allows us to see firsthand those corruptions that remain in our flesh. Because, you know, you can explain to someone, you know, you're, you're a, by, by nature, you're a sinner. And they will, okay, I see that. But it's only when there's a, 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 an intense provocation that comes when someone goes, wow, I had no idea. I've told you several of this, this before, but when I do pre-marriage counseling, in the first session, I always look at the couple and say, you know, I see someone smiling here. They know what I'm about to say. When, when you sit before me and I say, you know, you're Christian, so if I ask you, are you a sinner, you will say, yeah, I am. Yeah, of course I am. That's what the Bible says. But if I ask you a year into marriage, are you a sinner? You will hang your head and you will say, I had no idea how selfish and easily irritated and easily angered and provoked in all these ways because living in close proximity with another sinner gives us all kinds of occasions to see how much depravity is left in me. I mean, I thought I was just a really sweet, easygoing guy. And I found out much to my sorrow that that's not so much true. And, and, if, and again, if you've been married more than probably past the honeymoon, so give it more than 10 days, you know this. Some of you, before the honeymoon is over, you already know this. You realize, wow, I didn't know how much of that is in me. It saddens me. And then wait till the children come. Then you get a double dose, because not only is your own sin being provoked in you, but you look in the mirror and see how they speak. And you realize, is that what I sound like? So the Lord leaves these enemies for a similar reason. To show us something that he simply told us. See, he did tell the people. He told all through the sermons of Deuteronomy. Moses is telling the people, this is what you're going to do. And they probably thought to themselves, nah, I won't. I mean, uh, my neighbor over here, probably. But I won't. I wouldn't do that. So God says, okay. We'll see. And the enemies are left in the land. And their, their own sins are discovered as a result of that. So the intention of Yahweh's testing is, is both for his glory, but also for the good of his people. He wants them to know. He wants them to know, not just with their heads, but he wants them to know experimentally how desperate they really are. How much sin remains. How often in our culture do we hear people, and this is especially said to young people, and this is the time of year where you hear it the most in a graduation ceremony. Just follow your heart, right? Well, that's horrible advice, isn't it? That's horrible advice. And the book of Judges makes this abundantly plain, doesn't it? There is no king in Israel, and they all did what was right in their own eyes. Judges takes us to the, the, the conclusion of the depravity. Because in our hearts, we will think, eh, it's not that bad. We, we will entertain this some small, comfortable sin, and we'll think, yeah, it's just a little bit. It's not that bad. We go to the end of Judges and say, this is how it ends up if this is not mortified. This is what happens. And for any of us who says, no, nah, that wouldn't happen to me, you deceive yourself. I think it was Robert Murray Machane that said the seed of every sin known to man exists in every human heart. That's troubling, isn't it? The seed of every sin known to man exists in every human heart. Judges makes this plain to us. And this is why God leaves enemies in the land, to test that, to refine, to try them. Now, we have to ask the question, is God testing them so that he can find out how they will respond? Of course not. God knows the end from the beginning. Before he ever made Adam and Eve, he knew, he determined how the people of God would respond. Daniel Block in his commentary says, Yahweh's aim is not clearing the, uh, in not clearing the land, Canaan of its inhabitants is probationary. His purpose is reflected in two initiatives, or two, I'm sorry, in two infinitives, two verbs, to test Israel and to determine 
whether or not they would express allegiance to Yahweh by obedience to the Mosaic revelation. Of course, this test is not for the benefit of Yahweh, so he can tell whether or not Israel is faithful. He sees all things. The test is for Israel to give them an objective instrument that would declare to them the depths of their infidelity and the justice of God. This is an objective instrument. So how do we make sense of this? Is it just of God to bring calamity upon his people intentionally? Is it just of God to allow their enemies to cause them harm, even death? As we study the book of Judges, we're going to see an extreme degree of folly, of wickedness, of misery, even death, that in some way staggers the imagination. In fact, it's uncomfortable to read some of the accounts that we find in the book of Judges. How can God be just allowing those kinds of circumstances to come to his own people? I'm going to offer two answers to you regarding whether God is just to bring about such misery. The first one is a short one. It's a short answer. Paul answers this question in Romans 9. Here's his answer. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? So the short answer is, the simplest answer is, who are you, who am I, a mere creature, to question the wisdom and the mercy of God? Who are we to question his goodness and justice? But there is a longer answer from the scriptures as well. That, that ought to be a satisfactory answer, though. This is, this is the secret will of God. We don't, we, we're not told all these things. In some ways, the answer is, it's none of your business. That's hard for us to hear, isn't it? That's one of the, that's one of the hardest things to teach a young child, isn't it? Especially when they're siblings. It's none of your business. This doesn't concern you. This is, this is a conversation mom and dad are having. It's not, doesn't belong to you to know this. How much more do we see this in the mind of God? Where he justly says to us, this isn't your business. There's a reason I haven't told you this. You couldn't bear it if I did tell you. But in this case, in this particular circumstance, with respect to the question of why are there enemies remaining, God has expanded that answer for us. God uses all circumstances, even evil ones, to accomplish his good and benevolent and just purposes, along with training his people for righteousness. So God uses even evil events to accomplish his good purposes. Now, this is the unambiguous witness of both the Old and New Testaments. And just to give you a couple of examples, you all know the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his, by his brothers, ultimately brought into the house of Potiphar, falsely accused, he's in prison for years. He ends up, in God's providence, second in command in all of Egypt. And his own people, his own father who thinks he's dead, his brothers who think and hope he's dead, end up in Egypt because of a famine. And, and God, God's kindness toward them, he had used all that had gone on in the past with Joseph to put him in that particular place so that he could be a blessing to that entire family, which would become a nation. But on the occasion of the death of dear old dad, Jacob dies. And now the brothers are scared. The thing, Joseph has only been kind to us because of our father. And now that he is gone, he's going to seek revenge. Revenge. He's going to seek his vengeance upon us. But Joseph's statement, this is, this is one of those classic statements of God's providence in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, you intended this for evil. 
But God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. See, God had worked all those things, all those contrary providences, all those negative things. Think of all the time that Joseph spent in a prison cell, in a dungeon, thinking, why is this happening to me? I did nothing wrong. In fact, with respect to Potiphar's wife, I was seeking righteousness. And yet here I am in prison. Why? God in his kindness revealed that later to Joseph, that all these things happened, even though his brothers fully intended evil. And yet God used it to his good. And then, of course, in Romans chapter 8, we have this classic text in the New Testament. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, we will nod along when it's all good things work together for good. Right? That's easy. What about the bad things? What about the hard things? For those who are called according to his purpose, he goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? See, Paul, notice Paul doesn't ask, will riches and pleasure and comfort separate us from God? He's thinking in terms of what are those negative providences? What are those, as the Puritans would say, those frowning providences? How do those affect us? Paul goes on again in Romans 8. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I heard someone say one time that the doctrine of God's providence, this doctrine that he rules and governs everything from the least to the greatest, really is no comfort at all unless you believe that God is good. Isn't that true? If you have this concept of God in your mind, that God is, is somehow out to get you, that God intends harm to you, that God intends evil for you, then the doctrine that he's in control of all things would be no comfort at all, would it? It's only a comfort to us when we know that God is good and just in all of his dealings. And according to his perfect wisdom, according to his perfect goodness, according to his perfect justice, God uses even evil circumstances for his glory and also for our good. And it shouldn't surprise us that he uses the oppression of Israel by her enemies, cruel oppression, extended oppression, as we read through, sometimes it lasts for years that he would actually use that to reveal their hidden sins and weaknesses and to cause them to cry out to him who is the only true and eternal good. In his the second volume of his Reformed Dogmatics, Herman Bobink the Dutch scholar uh, used this illustration. He says, just as a father forbids a child to use a sharp knife, though he himself uses it without any ill results, so God forbids us rational creatures to commit the sin that he himself can and does use as a means to glorifying his name. That's kind of think, hard to think about, isn't it? But again, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Looking at us as parents, we would say to a son, you're too young to use that sharp knife. You'll hurt yourself. But the father, the mother can use that same knife with, with no danger whatsoever. In the same way, God can use evil circumstances, even the deliberate sin of other men, even our own sin, God may use for our good. We could not. We will hurt ourselves with it. But he can. This is difficult for us to grasp, isn't it? I mean, frankly, it is hard for us to sort of wrap our mind around this. And, and even during those days, those seasons of life where our, maybe we're relatively free of difficulty, where, where things are going relatively smoothly, even in those days, sitting comfortably and peaceably, we can say this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, that God will use even evil circumstances even difficult provinces to accomplish good for us. 
But let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with each other. How much harder is it when those are not easy days? When our days are full of sorrow, of grief, of loss, of anxiety, fear, of conflict, of, of exceeding temptation. How much harder is it in those days to say, this is for good? See, we, we will, in a good day, academically at least, say, yeah, I see that. That's, it's, he will use all things together for good. Praise God, hallelujah, that, that's great. But in the midst of the fire, when things are hard, can we remember that? Can we believe that very thing? The English Puritan Thomas Watson wrote a great little book. It's about 100 pages where he does, in classic Puritan form, an exposition of Romans 8.28. Spends about 100 pages sort of in that classic Puritan way, teasing out from every angle of that text. And, And the first two chapters, he wrestles with the reality that every Christian faces, that, that God is using all the things and all the circumstances in their lives for good. In the first chapter, that's the easy one. He makes the obvious case that all good things work together for the benefit of the godly. Well, we're not going to struggle with that one, will we? Oh, but chapter two. Chapter two gets tough. He argues how the worst things, this is the title of the chapter, how the worst things work for good to the godly. This is what he says. He says, do not mistake me. I do not say that of their own nature, the worst things are good, for they are a fruit of the curse. But though they are naturally evil, yet the wise, overruling hand of God, disposing and sanctifying them, they are morally good. As the elements, he's talking about the elements of the world, the elements of creation, as the elements, though, are contrary qualities, yet God has so tempered them that they all work in a harmonious manner for the good of the universe. Or, as in a watch, the wheels seem to move contrary to one another, but they all carry on the motions of the watch. So, things that seem to move cross to the godly, yet by the wonderful providence of God, work for their good. Among these worst things... There are four sad evils that work for good to them that love God. And he, and he teases these out. Here are the four headings that he works through in that chapter. The evil of affliction works for good to the godly. The evil of affliction. That affliction might be uh, affliction of your body. It's an illness. It's, it's, a, it's a chronic illness. It's acute pain. Maybe it's, it's, a, it's an affliction of soul. Your own temptations have afflicted you. The second one is the evil of temptation. Even the temptation to sin is overruled for good to the godly. Thirdly, he says the evil of desertion works for good to the godly. Now, when he uses this term desertion, he's talking about, in the language of our confession, it's the withdrawal of God's countenance. It's the drawing of the light of his countenance. It's God not permanently or finally deserting us. But in a sense, his smiling face turns away. You feel his fatherly displeasure. Even that is a, is a good to the godly. And finally, the evil of sin works for good to the godly. Now, in the book of Judges, we see all four of these. Affliction, temptation, desertion, and sin. We see all of those sort of dramatically displayed for us. And how God uses every one of those for the good of his people, for his true people. So the Lord is wise. He is good. And, and on the authority of his holy word, we know that he works together all things for the good of his people, whom, whom he has set his love upon. From all of eternity, he has loved his people. So, dear brothers and sisters, do you, do you, do you know, do you, do you rehearse these things and practice them in your own mind? That God is able to use even those enemies in the land, even those things that, that are left behind, those things that, with which you wrestle today and say, I wish, oh, I wish I weren't dealing with this. Either because it's, a, it's an external providence, 
that's afflicting you or because of your own sin. And you're facing the consequences of your own folly, your own unbelief, your own neglect. And yet your father and his kindness and goodness to you uses even that. Will you rehearse those things in your mind? These are important for us. And Judges makes these things very clear. God is able to use even the sin and wickedness of our own hearts to our profit. Think about this. This is exactly the message in the book of James. He he just jumps in. It's a short greeting and he jumps in with this fact. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The trials, the purification of your faith produces a steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. When I was 15 or so, I had an opportunity to go to with my grandmother to visit a great aunt who lives in Las Vegas, New Mexico. It's up in the mountains of New Mexico. The beginning of their, they have thousands of acres. The beginning of the dirt road leading up to their properties is 7,000 feet and it goes up from there. And for years, they had, they had uh, donated this black sand to the county because they could put it on the roads and it, would, it wouldn't wash away. Well, at some point, they determined that the reason it doesn't wash away is because that black sand is comprised largely of platinum, gold, and rhodium. Precious metals. It's very heavy, very dense. So they had an assayer. An assayer is the one who works with metals and purifies them. And I have this vivid image in my head. My brother and I were sent out with a a one-ton pickup with a lift gate on it to go fill up a 55-gallon barrel of the sand. We were sent out with a truck, a barrel, and two shovels. And over the course of that week or so we were there, we helped the assayer. And by the end of the week... We had, we could hold in the palm of our hand a a small handful of BBs that were precious metal. That was all. 55 gallons and through the process, and it was a lengthy process, all that would go into a furnace and all the impurities would be cooked off. And then he would add another chemical to it and go back into the furnace and, and another layer would be cooked off. And then another layer and another layer. And finally, we had pure metals, but it wasn't much. I mean, it wouldn't have covered a quarter. And I have this vivid image that's fixed in my mind of that process of sanctification. That God is far better than any assayer, far wiser, far better for us in refining us and drawing out all that remained. And if we don't wrestle with this question of why, why does God allow these things? Why does sin still remain in us? Why why is there sin in the world? Why does he have his people? Surely that as Christians, he would kind of cloister us together in a church and and we wouldn't have to, we'd just be totally insulated from the rest of the world. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't God just give us our own little sort of monastic enclave and we would be isolated from and insulated from all the evil of the world until he returns? There have been Christians who've attempted to do that over the centuries. What's the problem with that? Sin's in here. You can run, but you can't hide, right? It's all right here. So if we don't get this question of why answered correctly, there's two problems, and I'll close with this. Number one, <clears throat> in, in, in our study of the book of Judges, these things will be true, but also in our study of our own lives, this will be true. If we don't get the why question, why is why does sin remain? Why are the enemies still left in the land? The first thing is we will be tempted to second guess the character of God. And especially we will question his goodness and his justice and his wisdom. If, if we don't understand that God is actually using even those frowning providences, even those evil things done to us and the evil that comes out of us, he's using that for good. If we don't get that right, we will question his character. There's a second thing, again, in the book of Judges, but also in the book of life. We will be tempted unjustly to pity Israel when we see and we read about their oppression. 
when we read about the heavy jackboot of the Midianites, for example, we will be tempted, oh, those poor Israelites. No, 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 no. God is just and good. They had it coming. This is exactly what God had said would happen to them, number one, but also God was using that. He was using that to perfect them, to cause them to grow. And it's true with us as well. When we see our own selves under the chastisement of a good and wise God, isn't that the moment we're tempted to pity ourselves? And to think, oh, I don't deserve this. I mean, other people might, but I don't deserve See where this goes? This, this why question becomes very important as we think about the book of Judges, but as we think about the book of, of life itself, that God is using these things for our chastisement. He's using it for, for a just correction and rebuke for our own sin and folly, but also he's using these things to test us, to train us in righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us. We thank you that, that indeed these things have been written down for us, recorded for us as examples, written down that we may learn and learn about the corruptions that remain in us, the corruptions that remain in the world, the world, the flesh, the devil himself that seeks to wage war against our souls. Lord, will you grant to us the grace, first of all, to believe these things are true, to see these things in ourselves. And more than that, to see that you have provided the one and only remedy You have provided for us your own son. You've given to us a redeemer. You've given to us a savior who took on our flesh, who kept the law perfectly, who fulfilled everything that your covenant demanded of us. And that by your grace, your spirit has applied his work to us in full. If we will only believe that he has died that he's died for us and that you've caused him to be raised from the grave. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who know not a true and, and, and lively faith in Christ. I pray for your spirit to work in them, to believe that Christ truly and completely offers pardon for sinners. We ask this in his name. Amen.